0: Thanks, mate. Great to have that uh, reading in front of us. We are uh, continuing our series, uh, Jesus Is, and today we're looking at two potential answers. Jesus is good for you, and Jesus is one religion among many. I put them together because I think they kind of uh, account for a similar sort of answer, um, although they're they're both distinct. It's more or less saying uh, it's all relative, Okay, And what I'm going to do today is hope to show you that that is not the case and have us work through that really carefully. At the end of the sermon, I'm going to have some opportunity for question time. So as we're going through, if things spark your interest, please jot them down and we'll have the opportunity to answer those questions uh, at the conclusion of the sermon. So how about I pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are present this morning. Thank you, Father, that in this place your word has been read. Father, we ask now that by your Holy Spirit you might prepare our hearts, unclenched fists, soften hearts, unstop ears, and open eyes. Heavenly Father, we pray that this word might impact and change us today, for your sake. Amen. Well, so we want to be thinking about uh, who Jesus is, and the way we're going to do the sermon is the way I've been running them uh, through this series. We're going to take a little walk in this worldview. We're going to consider what the Bible has to say, and then we're going to see what we should do with it, if that's true. We're going to work out what we should do, if that's true. Well, let me start by considering a little bit of uh, this worldview. Uh, someone says to you, you know, you say, I believe in Jesus, and they go, oh, that's good for you. D- do you know this answer? Oh, I'm really pleased that you've found something that's good for you. I-, I want to think about that a little bit. What's happening in the head of the person that tells you, oh, that's, that's good for you? I think firstly, potentially, they're thinking, well, this is awkward. You just mentioned Jesus publicly. And since we saw a couple of weeks ago, 45% of Australians don't talk about religion at all. All of a sudden, we're talking about religion. How awkward. So the first thing I think they're thinking, oh, that's good for you. I'm out of my depth. This is profoundly awkward. Secondly, please don't say anything more, I think is what they're thinking after that. So when I say to you oh that's good for you I'm expecting that you don't come back and say anything else to me at all and what I'm secretly hoping I suspect is you're not too into it all are you Do you know what I mean like there are some people who are just over the top with religion you're not one of those are you it's good for you I I think this answer if if we think it through I can't help but feel that it's actually a little bit condescending Do, do you know what I mean Oh, that's good for you. I don't have need for such things, but I'm pleased that you do. Good, you. Do do you get where we're coming from? I want—I want to think about that condescending nature a little bit more. It's really interesting. If you say that's good for you, right? If Jesus is bad, then you're saying you don't care about me. Do you follow the logic? Oh, that's good for you, right? Well, if Jesus is a bad guy. Then when I say to you, oh, that's good for you, what I'm really saying is I don't care about you. But I suspect most of the people who say, oh, that's good for you, think that they're saying that Jesus is basically harmless. Oh, that's good for you. Nothing good or bad can come from that. Jesus is basically whatever. He's in the meh category, okay? So I think you're basically saying Jesus is basically harmless. Fair enough. Now, here's the interesting thing then. I want to think with people who say that's good for you, then perhaps he can be good for you too, can't he? Do you see? See, if Jesus is bad, then you're being really nasty to me. But I don't think when you say that, you're thinking he is bad. So if you're thinking he's kind of good, then let me challenge you and say, could he be good for you? Do you see? Okay, that's, that's answer number one. Jesus is good for you. Answer number two, Jesus is just one religion among many. This is kind of where that conversation may go if you say something else after you've got patted on the head, right? So, I hope you're not too religious. Oh, actually, I go on Sunday. Well, after all, Jesus is just one religion among many, isn't he? And you can feel, what, what are you expected to do at that point? You're expected to what? Agree, aren't you? After all, it's just one religion amongst many, isn't he? weight of pressure pushed to you, and it's your job to say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm." Do you feel that pressure? I do in those sort of situations. And I think if you put your head in in the mindset of the person who says, they're all pretty much the same, I think one religion amongst many, they're really saying they all are pretty much the same. From my my perspective, this is the person saying it to you, from my perspective, they're all pretty much the same. And to back it up, they can say, I know some different religions. I know some people from different religions. You know, Bob in accounting's a Buddhist, yeah? And I think Muhammad might be a Muslim, maybe? So I know those guys, and, and they're all doing the same sort of jobs we're doing. They're all, they're all good guys, I guess. It's just one religion amongst many, isn't it? Or alternatively, depending on your mindset, if you're being generous, I think that's what you're thinking. But there are some people who say, Jesus is just one religion among many, and this is what they'll mean. They're all equally bad. Yeah? There are some people who really do think this. It might shock you if you're sitting in church this morning, but some people think this. Religion is the seed of all evil in the world. All wars are caused by religion. So when they're saying it's all equally bad, what they're actually saying is, you know, just add Christianity to the mess of disaster that's in the world. I want to suggest to you that this answer is a little bit more aggressive than the other one. I actually think that this answer is really arrogant. It's saying, I've got a perspective on the world that you don't see. So someone's just said, I follow Jesus, I go to church on a Sunday. Oh, well, they're all just one religion anyway, aren't they? They're saying, I think essentially, you're saying that you know more about my religion than I do. Do you see what I'm saying? When you say they're all just one religion, what you're saying is, well, I see, little Christian, I see what you can't see. See, you're a Christian, but what you don't know that I know is that all religions are the same. You see how insulting that is? Have you, as a Christian, ever thought about other religions? Are you aware that there are other religions in the world? Did you become a Christian from another religion? Don't worry. I'm telling you, they're all the same. It's pretty arrogant, isn't it? Secondly, or I think probably more likely, rather than saying that all religions are the same is a careful reflection that you've made on the world, it probably means you haven't thought about it much at all. There's a God thing in the world and people do religious stuff. See, they're all the same. It's like saying tennis has a ball in it. It's the same as soccer. Backstroke is exactly the same as freestyle. They're all in the water, they're all sports, they're Olympics. Did did you see, if you look at the blur your eyes level, religious stuff, God, prayer, they're all the same, but it's really arrogant and it hasn't investigated at all what's actually going on. Thirdly, I think the person who says, aren't all religions the same, is generally someone who doesn't have a religion And so they're saying, I guess since you don't follow one, you're basically saying we're all clueless. They don't have a religion. All religions are basically the same. You're one of those religious people. You need a religion. See, I don't need one. I think this answer is really, really arrogant. It gives you a bit of a view of the world that we're in. Here's a little quote from a guy called Ravi Zacharias from a book called Jesus Among Other Gods that I'm reading at the moment. He says this, philosophically at the moment, you can believe anything so long as you don't claim it to be true. Morally, you can practice anything so long as you don't claim it to be a better way. Religiously, you can hold to anything so long as you don't bring Jesus Christ into it. That's my experience. Ravi Zacharias is a guy who was converted from Hinduism. It's a brilliant book. I'd encourage you to read it. But here's the thing. Our world has this general vibe. They're all roughly the same, and it kind of doesn't matter. I would say that either of those answers are either condescending or arrogant. This morning, I want us to have a look at what the Bible has to say, and I want you to be able to conclude for yourself what is going on when it comes to religion and the Bible. So you could say, hey, the Bible just teaches you about only one God. So if you're here today and you've been a Christian for a while, you're just being indoctrinated, right? The Bible, your holy book, only tells you about one God. Well, let's test that out in practice. Let's have a look. I want to give you my uh, Bible timeline. Uh, this is the Old Testament on the left-hand side, New Testament on the right-hand side. I've got some pictures to kind of have the major events of the Bible. Let me test the theory that the Bible is only telling you about one God. Well, it starts off that way, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How many gods are around? One. One. Okay, that's good. We've only got one. Once we get to Abraham, however, Abraham is a man who's the center point of the whole Old Testament. Abraham is the man on whom the promises are made. Guess where he comes from? A place called Ur of the Chaldeans. Guess what they have there? Other gods. God goes to modern-day Iraq and grabs a bloke who's a shepherd and says, hey, you, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. Part of the story is, as they're leaving, his wife hides idols of their hometown in her belongings. Do you think there's some other gods there? Yes, siree. What about when we get to Egypt, when God's people are taken to Egypt and they're enslaved there? Do you think Egypt has any gods? They're pretty famous for it, aren't they? All the hieroglyphics, all that sort of stuff, it's God-central. Now, in Egypt, we see magicians engaging with Moses. Moses is speaking for God, and there are magicians from another religion doing stuff to say, hey, see, we're matching this. Do you remember the story? And then the 10 plagues are specifically answering a whole bunch of Egyptian deities. I don't know if you knew this, but there's a god of the sky, and so what happens? Ra, who's the god of the sun, blackness comes over the whole nation. There's a god of the Nile. Guess what? It turns to blood and death. There's a god who's a frog. Guess what? The frogs invade their homes. Whatever way you turn, there's a god who's a cow. What happens? The cows die. At every point, the plagues are undoing the power of the gods of Egypt. Does the Bible know about other gods? Apparently in Egypt it does. How about when we get into the promised land? we have a land filled with the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all the rest of the ites. Why do they need to get cleared out? Because they have other what? You're catching on, aren't you? Because they have other gods. Now, you might think that God's people then got rid of them all, but the story is much sadder than that. In Israel, we meet the fact that the people of God are turned away to Baal and Molech, and the Astareths and various other gods, the people of God are led astray continually under the kings of Israel. They are idolaters, and in fact, they are so bad at following other gods that eventually God kicks them out of the promised land and into exile, where they go to Babylon. And the Babylonians have their gods be stronger than the Israelites, because they won, you see. And what do we find in Babylon? Well, we find Daniel standing up We find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow the knee to an idol, to another god. Do you think the Bible knows about other gods? And then in Isaiah, when they return, we see prophecy that one day, all the nations of the world will stream to Israel and worship who? One god. The Bible isn't naive about the fact that the world is filled with other religions, but it is absolutely unequivocal in saying the God we worship is the global God, not the God of this patch of earth. Does that make sense? In fact, my research said there are 51 other deities mentioned by name in the Bible. How radical is that? 51 other gods are mentioned by name in the Bible. Well, what about Jesus? Did Jesus? Was Jesus aware of other gods and a competing environment when he was teaching? Well, I would suggest to you he was. Do you remember the bit where, uh, where Jesus gets told uh, that tricky question about the coin? Will you pay taxes to Caesar? Do you remember this, this scenario? And on the back of the coin was an image of Caesar. And we kind of go, yeah, we've got the head of the queen on the back of our coins. It's bad for us, though, because we pay no attention to monarchs, Okay. But for them, Caesar was a god. He was worshipped around the empire as a god, and sacrifices were made to him. So when the coin was held up, will you pay taxes to Caesar? Essentially, what's being asked is, are you going to honour this other god? Or are you about to be a revolutionary? So what did Jesus do? Well, this is radical. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is Now, here's the amazing thing. What's Jesus just done? He just said, one of those two is not God. Do you see? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. I'm taking him down a peg and turning him into a regional authority. And give to God what is God's. Do you see how he's just diminished the God of their age? What about in Samaria? Well, Jesus goes to Samaria. He meets the woman by the well. In the most amazing outcome at the end of all his revelation about who she is and whatever, she says, come back and teach us. And so uh, Jesus uh, stayed in their village and, uh, and he, t- he taught in Samaria for two days. And here's what the woman says. At the end of two days of Jesus' teaching, the woman said, I oh, know the town said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Jesus taught for two days in Samaria. They had a different religion. It was corrupted from Judaism. Jesus spent two days there, and the outcome was, we now know that you, Jesus, are the saviour of Palestine and a little bit of Samaria. No. The saviour of the world. Jesus spent two days teaching people who are outside the Jewish religion, and their conclusion was, you're the saviour of the world. There's an amazing bit, a little bit later in John, where some disciples come up to Jesus and say, hey Jesus, there are some Greeks asking if they can see you. And all throughout John's gospel, he's been saying, my time has not come, my time has not come, my time has not come. When he hears that the Greeks have come to ask, can I see Jesus? Jesus says, my hour has now come. It is time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus knew that there were other people in the world, and once their eyes were starting to be turned to him, he knew he must die. And what about the world? Did Jesus care about the world or was he just concerned for Israel? Well, we know that he was concerned about the world because in Matthew 28, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Did Jesus know about other religions in the world? And what did he say? you are to take my message to everyone. I think it's pretty compelling that Jesus knew of other gods and thought he was unique. What about the rest of the New Testament? In the rest of the New Testament, we see that the Jews are on the agenda for the Christians to speak to. Paul says in Romans, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all first for Jews and then for Gentiles." Jews are to be converted. The New Testament knows of other religions that need to hear of Jesus. It knows of the Romans. So we see in Acts 25, Paul is standing before the Roman governors and he says, I'm going to preach Jesus to you because your gods are wrong. We see that he goes to the Greeks, and we're going to focus on that first reading in Acts chapter 17 in a second. He goes to Athens and proclaims Jesus. And then Revelation gives us a picture of the end where it says people from every tribe, language, and nation, and by definition, religion, We'll be standing around the throne of God and worshipping the Lamb. That's the picture of the New Testament. So let's take a closer look at Paul in Athens. Athens is pretty impressive. Has anyone been? Yeah, Yeah, Jeff. Great. It's pretty impressive. It's got some really cool old buildings in it, not least of all this one here. Anyone know what that is? Sorry? Parthenon. Absolutely. Have a listen. We're going uh, to—it's on page. What page was it? One thousand one hundred and eleven. All the ones in your Bibles. Go to Acts chapter seventeen. We're going to have a look at uh, Paul's journey to Athens here, and what happens while he was there. Acts chapter seventeen, page one 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 one. All the ones that you can find in your Bible. Uh, And and, uh, I'll pick it up in verse sixteen. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the, followers, and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So what's Athens like? Well, it's the centre of the Greek world, it's adopted by the Romans as being incredibly important. In fact, the Romans pick up all of the Greek gods and just kind of incorporate them into all their group of gods. So there's this massive array of gods in the world. And here they are gods for war, gods for safe travel, gods for love, gods for victory. A god who is the head of all the squabbling gods called Zeus. And Paul is in Athens, and as he looks around, he's absolutely overwhelmed at their idolatry. So he's a Jew, and commandment number one says, of the Ten Commandments says, you shall have no other gods but me. And commandment number two says, anyone know? You shall make no idols. So here's Paul, he loves Jesus, but he's been brought up as a Jew, and he's in this place that has every other god in the universe laid out on hills and altars and all around the place, and all these idols And he's deeply distressed. And so what's his response? I think I better leave. It's a bit icky here. I love Paul. He's so amazing. His response is, I need to start proclaiming Jesus. And he starts to do that. And the people who hear him can see he's preaching something different. They don't think it's the same. I want you to note this. No one in Athens would say all religions are the same. Are you with me? They hear Paul preaching Jesus and they go, this bloke is doing something different. He seems to be advocating foreign gods, not like our God. Now this is, I'll let you a little secret. Only secular people think all religions are the same. Because anyone who's religious knows what their religion is about, don't they? And if you're a Hindu, you are most definitely not a Buddhist or a Muslim. If you're a Muslim, you're actively not a Christian. Christianity existed before Islam did. Islam existed as a counterpoint to Christianity. Judaism was... Taken over by Christianity, they said, we've got your promises and we've got its fulfillment in Jesus. Jews say, we don't see that. Only non-religious people think that all religions are the same. That's the lie. So if you hear someone say that, you'd say, well, hey, can I tell you a little bit about religion? So the Athenians could see that it wasn't the same. And what did Paul do? Well, he engages with Athens in three contexts. And I want to help you understand the three different places he did that. Number one, he did it in the synagogue, okay? Why have I got that picture for the synagogue? It's a place where Jews go to feel clean and washed in the dirty environment that is the pagan world around them, yeah? And they'll hang out at the laundromat where we get clean. Number two, he went to the marketplaces, just ducked up to Woolies, why? Because everyone eventually has to buy some more marge. So he put himself in the place where the Jews and the God-fearers were. And then he went to the place where the general unwashed were. And then he got taken by them to a special third place. A place called the Areopagus. Now, I don't know if there are too many people here who know what a TED Talk is. you guys know what a TED Talk is? Okay. These are great. Okay. TED Talk is where you go to get a 15-minute insight into some new idea. Okay? and they get people from all around the world to come and do these talks. They go for 15 minutes, and someone stands up and will share their brilliant idea, and everyone sits around very wisely and knowingly learning lots. Okay? So the environment is, that's what TED Talks are all about. I think that is the Areopagus. It's the Athenian TED Talk. Okay? So here we go. Paul goes to the laundromat, he goes to the supermarket, and he goes to the TED Talk. What happens there? Now, has anyone watched Sesame Street? Probably not for a little while. Some of you will be watching Sesame Street now, I guess. That's good. Now, do you know this game? What do we need to say when we see a picture like this? One of these things is not like the others. Now, there we go. Oh, you're on it, Anne. So, maybe, maybe this doesn't still happen, but the idea is we present four things, and one of these things is not like the others, yeah? So one of these things is not like the others. I wanted to see the not like the others moment that happens in this passage here. Have a look with me at verses 22 and following. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I I see that in every way you are very religious. Notice he doesn't say idolatrous. I notice that you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription. To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him. And though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So Paul says, as I wandered round Athens, I saw you're very religious. And I noticed one of these things is not like the others. There's actually an altar here to an unknown God. If we had another half an hour today, I'd tell you the story behind that. Ask me in question time. It's really exciting. But he finds an altar that isn't to Zeus. It's not to Dionysus. It's not to Aphrodite. It's not to any of those. He says, I found an altar to an unknown God, and that which you worship in ignorance, I am going to tell you about. You see, there is one God. Do you see how he does it? He finds a point of connection with them, and he goes for it. Now, when I was in, uh, in India, I found as I wandered around uh, the temples and those sorts of things, I'd often find beautiful carvings with their faces missing. Does anyone know why the faces are missing in the carvings? Hindu artwork defaced by the Muslims who came in afterwards and took over. Why? Why? because they don't like any graven images. And I found it time and time again, all through India. Now, just just again on the quiet, do these two religions think the same thing? It's obvious, isn't it? It's physically there in front of you. They don't think the same thing, yeah? Have a look what happens in Acts 29 to 30, 31. Since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he would judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. See, he rebukes their idolatry, says, don't make idols if that's what the true God's like. And he preaches for repentance. How gutsy is he in a TED Talk? Right? So, what he says is, hey, Athenians, I want to tell you what the true God is like. The true God. The true God is the creator. He needs no temple. He needs no offerings. He accepts no idols. He gives life to all. He determines the nations and their times. He deserves seeking and he can be found. Isn't that brilliant? That's the true God. And I want you to know how incredibly bold he was. Here's Athens, okay? Here is the Areopagus. And behind him is the Acropolis. Paul says, the true God does not live in temples built by human hands. And what is standing behind him? One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which is a temple built by human hands for a pagan God. Do you see this? It's, it's incredibly bold. The true God is not made with idols. He will not be worshipped by idols. He's in a city full of idols and he proclaims Jesus in the midst of it all. He knew other religions and he unapologetically proclaimed Jesus. See, we're seeing Jesus is good for all. That's what Paul is saying. Jesus is good for all and he's utterly unique. Utterly unique. So what should we do if that's true? Well, according to uh, this passage, we should repent and await judgment. The proof, how can you prove that that's actually what's going to happen? The resurrection. He says God has given proof of this by raising a man from the dead. He says you doubt me? Look to the empty tomb. That's where the answer is. And at that point, how do they respond? Well, a bunch of people were sneering. (laughs) Resurrection, that's nuts. You've gone loopy, Paul. We're checking out of this TED TED talk. We're stopping it right there. We're not following on. We're not doing anything more with you. We're off the boat because you're off your rocker amazingly wonderfully some of them engaged in faith have a look at this verse 34 some of the people became followers of Paul and believed among them was Dionysus a member of the Areopagus also how wonderful is this a woman named Damaris and a number of others I just want you guys to notice there's a man and a woman noticed in this meeting who are so esteemed that they are recorded for all eternity as responders to the faith of Jesus from that meeting isn't that brilliant I just want us to think into our world as we finish up. Our world's a little different, isn't it, than Paul's world? I could say, go do like Paul, see you up at Woolies afterwards. What's different? Well, we are secular, not religious. What that means is we're full of material stuff. We have no religious idols, but we might have some secular ones. We have very few people who are seeking God. We've collapsed down to smiley-facing and sad-facing things. And I would argue we have almost no intellectuals left. We're just not interested in any of that game. There are no Epicurean and Stoic philosophers meeting at a hill in Oren Park, are there? It's just not our world. And so I would argue Paul's launching points are all gone. We can't find the altar to an unknown God. We can find the altar to a mortgage and enshrining my family as my God. We can find that everywhere. Just pick me a street address in Oran Park. But how do I get from that to the God who made all and will be found by secret? It's hard, isn't it? So so how should we begin to respond? Well, if someone says to you, God is good for you, Jesus is good for you, I want to ask them, what's your background with the church? Right? So if you say, Jesus is good for me, I'm intrigued. Do you have a background with the church? Ask them. Jesus is good for you. Do you have a background with the church? See, what happens if you do that is, I'll start to understand whether you're patting me on the head, or whether you know a little bit. If you don't know anything, I'm finding that out as well. So first response, someone says, Jesus is good for you. I say, oh yeah, really, what's your background with the church? And secondly, once we've had that conversation, I want to ask people, could he be good for you too? Hard or okay? They say, Jesus, oh, that's good for you. Yeah, well, tell me about your background with the church. Do you think he could be good for you too? Possible? Why would we want to do that? It says in Acts 17.3 that he has set a day when he would judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed he's given proof of this by raising him from the dead. Jesus will be good for all, and it'll be great for our friends and family to meet him before that day. Yes? Absolutely. Apparently he's given proof about raising someone from the dead. Come on Easter Sunday, and I'll tell you some more about it. Nice. Invite them to come along. What if if someone says, it's just one religion among many? What do I want to ask? What's your background with the church? Why don't you tell me? I'm interested. You think he's just one religion? Do you have any background with the church? Tell me. So be interested. Secondly, would you like to find out a little bit how he claimed to be different? All religions are the same. You, you know, I can tell you a little bit about how Jesus claimed to be different. Would you be interested? Does that seem possible? Look at you guys. You're a bit scared. I think it's possible. I think it's possible. Why would we do that? Because Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. He said he was unique. He said he was unique, not you're saying he's unique. He came for himself to be unique. There is only one way to the Father. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. If you say he's the same as Buddha, you fundamentally don't get it. And so I want to know, can I tell you a little bit more about why Jesus is different? Yeah? Okay. Again, come along at Easter and find out why he's different. It's got something to do with the cross. I want to tell you, Jesus is good for all. Jesus is utterly unique. And I can't wait for the world around us to find out how good and unique he is. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beauty of your Son. Thank you for the boldness of Paul. Help us now to reflect on him. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Question time, because, you know, got a bit fired up. It's entirely possible some people have got some questions. Uh, questions that naturally follow. Some, someone got a question to ask after that? I know you do. You're thinking about someone or something. Ask me a question. Oh, Janine. Sim, can I have um, the mic up? Um, so, uh, if... People want to know the differences and want you to explain the difference between Christianity and Hinduism, but you don't know much about Hinduism to be able to... Could you put out a thing of different religions for guides? Is that a thing? (laughs) Um, To help us, just to learn briefly and a quick summary of other religions so that we are... Yep, two. Two things I'd say in response to Educated. That. Yeah, yeah. So Jesus amongst other gods, where Ravi Zacharias is killer at this, he's going to do a much better job than I am. Secondly, if someone gives you a two-second summary of Christianity and says, see, I understand your religion, all of us are going to go, there might be more to say on that. So I think we want to be more informed than we were, okay? But my one-page summary of Hinduism is probably unlikely to do it justice. Does this make sense? My take is, when I get to say to someone, I think Jesus is different, I'm going to not pretend that I know every religion in the world. What I'm going to try and do is explain that I know something about Jesus, and I'd like to point point you to him. So uh, I might know some of the basic things about Hinduism, uh, 330 million gods or something like that, versus one god. That's a difference. I I might know uh, a variety of things about the way they eat and do but, but beyond that, I'm, I'm kind of pushing into what I don't know. I prefer to stick, and this is my general rule with all apologetics, answering people who have questions, is to say, if I stick to Jesus, I'll be most likely to talk about what I know, and I'll be most likely to bring the person who's going to make all the difference to them before them. Does that make sense? But yes, so uh, Jesus Amongst Other Gods by Ravi Zacharias, do some homework, and I'll see if I can put some links together for you. Is that all right? Good. And. So I've had the experience of a Hindu woman who has become a Christian and she then said to me, will my Hindu gods be angry with me now? Yes, good question. And then I've had a Buddhist woman, now admittedly this was in a jail context but I think it still applies on the outside, and she had become a Christian and she said, can I still go to Buddhist chapel now that I'm a Christian because that's the only time that I get to talk in her first language. So, and you said what? Ann? <laughs> I always we have that as a, we have discussion questions at training about difficult questions, and that's yeah. one of my difficult questions. Sure, because it's very hard to say to someone. Sure. <sighs> tell when I'm not in that cultural. Yeah. yeah. There's so a wonderful the cultural, part. Of, there's a wonderful part in the Bible with a guy called um, Naaman, who's a Syrian who uh, comes to Israel because he's got leprosy, gets healed. By Elijah, I think it is, by washing in the river. And uh, he's going back home to uh, a different country where there's a different God. And he says to Elijah as he leaves, he said, Will you, he, he, first of all, he picks up a bag of soil from Israel so he can worship at home on the soil of Israel. Really interesting. And then he says, Will you forgive this one thing when my Lord, the king, bows before the altar of his God and I'm standing beside him? Will that be okay? And I think the answer from the Scripture appears to be, go and worship Jesus, and if you find yourself in a social situation that obligates you to be there, so be it. Your heart will be devoted to Jesus, and it's the same with eating food from idols and a variety of other things in the New Testament. I don't think it's wise for us to hang out regularly there, but God gets if you're devoted to Him. So I would say that's the example I'd call on, although it'll be fraught and different in every situation, and particularly uh, challenging in cultural situations where everyone from your people group has a particular religion. And I guess I'd want to say uh, grace and wisdom would apply there. If there's one more question, we'll take it. Otherwise, you can come and see me at morning tea. Right at the back. Yes? Uh, My question is directly to the idols. The idols are made by the hand, right? They don't see or hear or feel. I want to know what gives them the power um, to be God, than the, 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 the living God that created the, the heaven and earth. Yes. So an idol is, is merely a construction of man. How is there that this, is, uh, this idol represents power in the world? Is that kind of your, your thing? I think that there is, we believe... Christians believe in a spiritual realm where there is one God overall and a world that has demonic power in it. That's real. And it wants to subvert people and enslave them. And I believe that demons attach themselves and are worshipped through idols, and there is genuine spiritual power there, okay? And we'll know when it's working when people are enslaved to it. So I can't feel safe or confident until I've done my offering to the altar. All sorts of different religions will have this enslaving nature, okay? And so I would say there's a demonic power behind the idol, although it is nothing in itself, and we need to be very careful about the reality of evil power in the world that is directed as worship to other idols. On top of that, there's wonderful news for everyone who's in Jesus. It says in Galatians 5.1 that it is for freedom that we have been set free God can set anyone free from their slavery to idols and other gods. I'm going to stop there and uh, hand back to Jeff.